Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at Luke seven eighteen through 23. If you don't have a Bible, you could probably find one in the pew in front of you. It's helpful to follow along so you can actually see what the text says and so you know that I'm not lying to you. Let's just say that, uh, you know, it's a f- beautiful fall day, just just like today, and you're driving your family to church, and as you get closer, there's lots of clouds in the sky. It looks like maybe there might be a thunderstorm, and you get your children dropped off at their Sunday school class, and you barely make it in for the start of the first song, and with loud voices, people start singing Come thou almighty king, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise. Father all glorious or all victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. And right at the end of that first stanza, you blink and when you do, everything gets quiet. Everything gets perfectly quiet and you open your eyes and nobody's up here anymore. The choir's gone. Edward's gone. As a matter of fact, most of the people in church are gone. The silence is deafening, and then people start to cry out in despair, realizing that the rapture has occurred, and they're not believers, and they didn't go to heaven. You know, this could happen this morning. This could happen right now. Think about that. Think about the rapture happening right now. Where would you be? Would you be with Christ or in the pew? Do you even know Christ? I'm not talking about knowing about Christ. Even the demons know about Christ and quite a bit more than we do. I'm talking about having a relationship with Jesus You know, knowing Jesus as you would know a friend. You have to ask yourself, what hope is there for the musician's dog to be awakened at the sound of the trumpet when every day it falls asleep as the band practices? What hope is there for the Christian who comes to church week after week and whose ears have become dull to the pounding hammer of the gospel. And how will the trumpet call of God ever awaken them who are dead in the pews? How do they ever come to even know Christ when they don't have the Holy Spirit to quicken them to the truth and to illumine their heart to the call of God? You know, a ship that lays in the harbor for years and never leaves dock becomes unfit for sailing. The barnacles cling to the hull in thicker and thicker masses. The rigging rots. The tackle freezes shut. And though there be a fair wind for sailing out to sea, now they can't go out. They've waited too long. They're stuck in the harbor for good. The scriptures speak of people like this in the church. They're described by a bunch of different terms. They're they're the terrors among the wheat. 
that the sheep or the goats among the sheep and the wolves among the sheep and the hidden reefs and the autumn trees and the clouds without water. They are the virgins unprepared to meet the bridegroom, the wicked, lazy slaves, those who will not forgive, those who will not love. And they are in all the local churches around the world, some more than others. And if you are one of them, if you are one of the tares among the wheat and a goat among sheep, our text this morning has some very important things to say to you. If you remember, Jesus is ministering around the Sea of Galilee, around the area where he grew up. And he's teaching and preaching up a storm, calling sinners to repentance, preaching the kingdom, healing the sick, raising the dead, doing all sorts of miracles. And people are following him in huge masses. They are so amazed at him. Some are following because they want to get their backache hurt. You know, they're healed that they hurt themselves a while back. And other people are blind and hope he comes by. And other people are being carried on stretchers. People wanting their relatives healed. And Jesus is going about. He is condemning the hypocritical leaders. He's spending time with the lowliest of society. And the crowds are just amazed at all of this. He is a miracle worker. He is a great teacher. And he is telling them things they have never heard before. Jesus has recently healed the God-fearing centurion slave from a distance. He just got through raising the widow of Nain's son in front of a huge crowd. He's been healing all manner of disease and sickness. And this huge crowd is following him around. And among that huge crowd are some of John the Baptist's disciples. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask you, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. From this text, you're going to be confronted with the granddaddy of all questions. The granddaddy of all answers and a choice. With two different outcomes. The first is the most important question you could ever ask. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Stop there. Reported to who? Reported to John the Baptist. Why did they report to John the Baptist? Why didn't John come himself? Because John was locked up in prison. 
Apparently, John was very curious about Jesus, so he kept sending his disciples out and, you know, go follow me around and come back and tell me what he's doing. I want to know what he's doing. I want to know what he's saying. Go. And maybe he had among his disciples, he's rotating them, you know, as soon, go follow Jesus. And as soon as two more of the disciples come, then you come back and tell me that we always have a fresh rotation. We don't miss anything. Look at verse 19 and 20, summoning the two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And so they came to Jesus and that's what they asked. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? The phrase someone else is literally another of the same kind. They acknowledged Jesus was a great prophet, a great teacher, that he was doing many miracles, that God was working through him. But John had a question. Are you the Messiah? the expected one or are you just one a great prophet of the same kind they realized jesus was a great miracle worker and prophet but john here is sending his disciples to ask jesus whether or not he is the messiah now i don't know about you but this immediately creates a question, doesn't it? Well, doesn't John already know this? I mean, you you think he did. I mean, it was John who grew up with Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias spoke to the angel. Elizabeth had the miraculous conception. Her cousin was Mary, the mother of Jesus. He knew about this. It was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, heard the voice from heaven, saw the the dove light upon Jesus, the spirit like in the form of a dove light upon Jesus. It was he who heard this voice. This is my son. It was he who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world twice. So why is he asking in this text? Are you the one I already said you were? Doesn't that seem kind of strange to you? Well, it is strange. It is strange. Matthew 11.2 says, When John, while in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. This gives us the first clue why he was confused. He was in prison. I mean, think about it. You know who you are by prophetic utterance. Your mom and dad tell you, you know you're the forerunner. You know that's your job. And you've been doing your job and you've been doing a good job. And now you're in prison. And I'm sure John was thinking to himself, what am I doing here? I mean, Jesus is walking around the country and I'm supposed to be telling people about him and I'm in prison. Why does God have me in this prison? I mean, it was John who was in the words of Isaiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness and the words of Malachi the messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord and the one who was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And now he's just rotting in prison. And so John is having some problems here. What is going on here? What is God doing? The second reason John is having some doubts is that Jesus didn't keep the traditions of the Jews. If you turn back to Luke 5, verse 33, look there. Luke 5, 33, we've already looked at this several years ago. 
533, where the scribes and Pharisees comment about John's disciples to Jesus, and they, that's the scribes and Pharisees, said to him, that's Jesus, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink, implied, if you look at the context, with tax collectors and sinners. In other words, not only were the Pharisees surprised, but John's disciples were surprised that Jesus was eating with Gentiles, sinners, the lowest scum of society. They, according to the profession of the scribes and Pharisees here, kept all the traditions, but Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't doing all of these man-made traditions. So John knows that the Messiah is the Holy One of God. He knows that the Messiah is going to come onto the scene and be this godly man. And now he's hearing from his disciples that Jesus isn't keeping the traditions. And he's wondering to himself, hmm. You know, he needs to be sinless in order to be the Lamb of God, and yet his disciples report to him, oh yeah, he he was sitting in a house with a bunch of Gentiles, tax collectors, there were some harlots there, and he was talking to them, he ate their food. And they're wondering, what's going on? And John is looking at Jesus' approach, and looking at his approach, I mean, John stood out there on the banks of the Jordan and said, Repent! For the axe is laid at the root of the tree. I mean, he had this stern, rebuking, hellfire and brimstone message. Jesus is pretty laid back. Yeah, let's have lunch. And talk. Thirdly, Jesus didn't seem to be overthrowing any Gentile powers and setting up his kingdom. You have to keep in mind that John the Baptist was the forerunner. His specialty was Messiah. He knew what the Old Testament said. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. It's between Psalms and Malachi. (laughs) The Italian prophet. Isaiah chapter 40. This is where the book of Isaiah switches from a message of primary doom and judgment to primary comfort and blessing. And this is what we read in verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5 of Isaiah 40. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth this de- the de- in, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. I just want you to know there, notice at the beginning of the verse, clear the way for Yahweh and smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I want you to know, John the Baptist knows this is him. And so he's wondering, well, where's all the glory here? Where is the, you know, the big show of strength and power where God in human flesh comes back to be revealed to all flesh? I mean, they ran Jesus out of his hometown. They tried to throw him off a cliff. 
And he's trying to think, okay, now, this isn't matching up. I mean, I heard the voice. I saw the spirit thing. I did the pronouncement. But Jesus isn't, there's no, there's no hostile takeover. What's happening? Turn over to Malachi chapter 3, or Malachi. If you can't find Malachi, right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord... This is great. You know, all these verses, they refer to Jesus as Yahweh. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Again, this prophecy says that John, and he knows this is talking about him says that when he comes right after that, there is some vengeance, there is some judgment, there is some cleaning of the house. The whole earth is refined and the people of God are exalted, the wicked people are put down, and Jesus, the Messiah, is going to establish his kingdom. But what's happening? Well, not much. I mean, some miracles, those are good. But you know, the Romans are still uh, pretty thick. Look over at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. See, all of these texts speak of the Messiah coming back after the forerunner, establishing his kingdom by the execution and judgment of wicked people and by the exaltation of those who believe and trust in him. And yet now Jesus is running around from different people. He's being persecuted. They tried to throw him off a cliff. He's not fighting. He's not wiping anybody out. There's no fire from heaven, no lightning bolts, nothing. And John is in prison. He can't understand why he's there. And he doesn't understand why Jesus isn't, you know, expediting things. I mean, come on, why wait? You know, I mean, if you're going to wipe them out, wipe them out. Get on it. But he wasn't establishing his kingdom on earth. He was preaching the kingdom. He was offering the kingdom. Instead, he was receiving persecution. And so John, obviously, because of these things, was doubting. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, listen, I got to know. Are you the Messiah or not? Are you the expected one or not? Now, in case you were wondering why these texts predicted things that never happened Let me just go off on an interesting rabbit trail and explain. A lot of people read this passage, and then even when they read these Old Testament passages, they're saying, well, if that is John, you know, if if John the Baptist was this voice, was this messenger, 
was the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, which we know he was. Jesus said he was. I mean, even on down, which we will get to next week, Lord willing, in verse 27, it it quotes one of the texts right in our passage. So the question is this, why do those Old Testament prophecies predict the coming of Elijah, this messenger, and right after that, the establishing of the kingdom by the Messiah? If those texts referred to John, then what happened? Because it didn't happen. Well, let's look at this. First of all, you need to understand some important things about Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophets received information from God and they gave it just like they received it. But when they received it, they didn't receive all the information they could have received. That's why we have a whole Bible. I mean, we wouldn't need the New Testament if the Old Testament was all God wanted to give to us. And from their perspective, it was like looking through the sights of a rifle. When you look at this through the sights of the rifle, the rear sight and the front sight look very close together. Now, if you turn the rifle sideways, you can see that there is a distance between them. Well, from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, from the perspective of John the Baptist, he was looking at the coming of the Messiah And the establishing of his kingdom as if he was looking through the sights, aiming a rifle, and he saw them as close. It's like, uh, there's a lot of places that this happens. For instance, in Isaiah 9-6, which is one of the Christmas texts of Isaiah, For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And there will be no end to the establishment of his kingdom. And you go, okay. He came, the son was given, but he's not ruling. I mean, it's one verse. There's a huge gap in between son given and the government's resting on his shoulder. From Isaiah's point of view, it was close. But now that we know more, we see there's a gap. This is what's confusing John. He doesn't understand Why all these prophecies that he knows about in the Old Testament aren't being fulfilled like God says they should be fulfilled because he knows this is the word of God. He knows God cannot lie. He knows every promise of God is true. And yet he has these expectations. And although they are correct in some degree that all these things will happen and God's word cannot fail, he doesn't understand the difference between the first and the second coming. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples about John. In Matthew 11. We're going to look at verse 14, 15 in a minute. But Jesus is talking to his disciples about John. In verse 9, Jesus says, John is a prophet, more than a prophet. In verse 10, he quotes Malachi's prophecy about John, the one we just read. Jesus speaks of John's greatness and how John's ministry started this new era. Now look at verse 14 and 15. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's the Elijah. Malachi 4, 5. He's the guy. 
He's the guy we've been waiting for, which means Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, that's exactly what that means. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Verse 9. Peter and James and John have just gone up on the mount with Jesus. Jesus has peeled back his earthly shell or whatever and revealed himself in his kingdom glory and along with him Elijah and Moses show up and Jesus kind of gives Peter James and John a glimpse of kingdom glory and then this is what we read starting in verse 9 and as they were coming down from the mountain Jesus commanded them saying tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes and say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, did you see anything interesting there? Elijah is coming in the future and will in the future restore all things. Elijah has already come and it's John the Baptist. What does that tell you? There's two. There's two Elijah's. Just as there is two comings of Christ, so there are two messengers who come in the spirit and power of Elijah to herald the coming of Christ. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Where we get a glimpse of the second Elijah. 11 verse 3. Here... John is being shown the last three and a half years of the tribulation and is told this. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. They are referred to as the two olive trees in verse 4. The same terminology is also spoken of in Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4 speaks of these two olive trees. And the two olive trees, we are told, are two offices. The office of both king and priest. And Zerubbabel, who is of the royal line of David, is ruling at that time. And Joshua is the high priest. Both Zerubbabel and Joshua at that time represent the coming of the Messiah who will hold both offices of priest and king. John here seems to use the two olive tree terminology in order to emphasize that the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 like Zerubbabel and Joshua, represent the Lord to the people. But notice the kinds of things that these two witnesses do in Revelation 11, verse 5 and 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. That's a neat trick. 
So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, did you notice anything there? Have you read Kings lately? Second Kings? The bad guys come to get Elijah and he commands fire to come down out of heaven and consumes the enemies several times. Do you remember what happened in 1 Kings 17 and 18? Elijah commanded that it would not rain and the sky was shut up for three and a half years. It didn't rain. These two witnesses do the same things. They come in the same spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah preached repentance and tried to turn people from their sin. So do these two witnesses. In addition to that, it says they can also turn water into blood. Does that remind you of anything? They are also able to command plagues. Remind you of anyone? Moses was able to do that. That has led some to believe that these two men are, in fact, Elijah and Moses. Others say they are Elijah and Elijah, as Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. My favorite guess is they are Enoch and Elijah, because those are the two men in the Bible who never died. They need to die once. Regardless of who the second one might be, one of them is the promised messenger, Elijah. And right after he prophesies, then all of those texts, which we have just referred to in Isaiah and Malachi, will happen just like they are written in the text. God will come back in the person of Jesus Christ. All flesh will see it. He will wipe out the wicked. He will rescue the godly and he will establish his kingdom on earth. And that's what will happen. End of rabbit trail. Back to Luke 7. Okay, so that's that. So first, John was in prison. This is why he's doubting. He doesn't know why he's there. Second, Jesus didn't keep the tradition of the Jews, like John and his disciples. Third, Jesus didn't wipe out the Gentile powers and restore Israel and set up his kingdom. So he's wondering. From John's perspective, things look worse, not better. He didn't understand that Jesus would come a first time in humility to die on the cross, be buried, rise again, and then some other time in the future beyond us today, come back in glory to rescue those who are his. And so what can we learn from this? I think there's one thing that is really encouraging to learn from this, and it is this. Sometimes you just can't figure out what God is doing. It's good to remind ourselves of that. You may be godly. You may know the scriptures really well. You may encounter some problem. You may see some promises in the word of God. And you may think to yourself, okay, this is what the word of God says. This is what I'm going through. This is what the word of God says. And it's not happening to me. Why is this not happening? Why is this not working? And you can begin to 
worry and fret because the scriptures say this, but it's not happening. Like John, well, listen, John the Baptist knew it. I mean, you know, he knew all about his father and his mother and Mary and Jesus. And he knew about the scriptures. He knew about the promise. He saw the miracles, the dove, the voice, the I mean, he said twice, it's the lamb of, he's the lamb of God. He had it all, but you know what? He's still confused. That is encouraging. That is encouraging. Especially when Jesus said he's the greatest man ever born of women. And he didn't know what was going on. And so, be encouraged. You know, John, right after this, had his head cut off. He never figured out what was going on until he got to heaven. But the lesson you and I can take from this is this. Sometimes, even though we believe in the scriptures, and even though we know God's promises cannot fail, we look at them, we look at our life, we look at our situation or the situations that other people are in, and we're just wondering ourselves, why is this happening? Why did Katrina come in and plow into New Orleans? In the surrounding area. Why did that happen? Why didn't we get wiped out with an earthquake? I mean, is L.A. more righteous than New Orleans? And God's ways of doing things are not always like we expect. Even though we can see the text, and it's not that we're misunderstanding the text, but sometimes we don't understand the processes God is going through. You know, when the hurricane has come through, there's just been all sorts of wickedness going on. Women being raped and people being killed and, you know, this looting going on. Snipers sitting on the top of buildings and shooting people dead. Most of this you don't hear about in the news. Yet what is very interesting is, even though all this great catastrophe has come down, I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole place is just wiped out. I mean, I've never been there, but I heard that, you know, they had good cooking and lots of sin there. (laughs) Do you know what people want now? They're crying out for Bibles. It snapped them out of their complacency. Sometimes people just get caught up in their sin and their pleasure and their wickedness. And it takes something like this to come in and just rock their world. And then they go, I need God. I'm sure many, many people will come to Christ as a result of this. God would rather have you totally destitute, having lost everything and saved, than to have you the owner of a huge business in downtown New Orleans and be lost. Satan knows that if he can sell people the lie that Jesus is, you know, just a man and Jesus was not really God and Jesus was, you know, a good prophet, but he wasn't God incarnate. The Christ spirit came upon him. You know, this is the second thing we need to learn from this. Who is the Messiah? There's all sorts of messiahs out there. All sorts of Christ, people claiming to be the savior, you know, the sun, young moons and Buddhas and people who claim to offer salvation or some form of heaven to those who will believe in them. 
And Satan knows that if he can get somebody and call them Christ or call them Jesus and just alter them a little bit, change their identity, change what they did, change doctrine a little bit and have somebody place their faith in that false Jesus, he can damn them to hell. And he's doing it and he has done it. Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Does that sound narrow to you? That is absolutely narrow. Listen, if you want to see the Father, if you want to go to heaven, you have to know who the Messiah is. Who is the expected one? And this brings us to our next point, the most important answer you could ever receive. Look at verse 21. At the very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to the many who were blind. Luke tells us that John's disciples asked him the question, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And before Jesus answered the question, he started healing people left and right. I mean, he went into a healing flurry. Casting out demons, healing people of diseases and afflictions, giving sight to blind people. Look at verse 22. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus performs a whole bunch of miracles and says, go tell them about that. Now you might be wondering to yourself, why is this? I mean, why, why doesn't he just say, I'm the Messiah? I mean, it kind of seems a little cloak and daggerish, doesn't it? Yeah, here's a clue. Go give him this clue. Now, to us, it may seem quite obscure, but to John, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, whose specialty was Messiah coming, who would know the verses about the Messiah, this was like a huge billboard saying, absolutely, I'm the Messiah. Because Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which speaks of the Lord himself, the God of Israel, being revealed to the people. And Isaiah writes this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And then Isaiah goes on to explain all of these blessings that will happen as the Messiah sets up his kingdom on earth. All these are works that the Messiah would do. And he did them at his first coming and he's going to do them at his second coming. Isaiah 61.1 is also alluded to by Jesus. Isaiah writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news. That's the gospel to the afflicted or poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what Jesus was doing. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, go tell him I'm, I'm, I'm still the Messiah. I'm still the guy. He says, wait a second. Heals a whole bunch of people and says, go tell him that. Go report about those things. 
So they all run back and they say, well, he did this and he did this and he did this and he did this. And John's thinking, that's what the Messiah is going to do. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of fallen humanity. Question answered perfectly. He is the only one. Jesus is the only one who can save you. You can't save yourself by doing good works, by being good. You can't save yourself by working hard to do religious deeds, by thinking that, you know, God is going to look at your life. He's going to see your good deeds. He is going to see your bad deeds. And obviously, you've got more good deeds than bad deeds. And he's going to say, you know, the good deeds are a little heavier. Come on in, you who have worked and earned salvation for yourself by your own self-righteousness. Not in your life. This is the reasoning of the children of hell. It's folly. It's foolishness. And you know what? It's the reigning belief in the world among all religions and even among many who profess to be Christians today. You go up to the average person who just wears the label, I'm a Christian. And you say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. Why? Well, you know, I've been a good person. I haven't murdered anybody. They always throw that one out. I've never murdered anybody. (laughs) You know, I I try to do what's right. And uh, you know what they're telling you? I am my own savior. I'm going to heaven because I'm saving myself by my own good deeds. You see, when a believer is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he receives Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is credited to his account So before God, he is positionally perfect and holy in Christ by faith. The believer has perfect atonement for his sins, complete forgiveness. The blood of Christ washes him clean and white and pure as the snow. Positionally in Christ, he is righteous, sanctified, and justified for all eternity. Now knowing this, Christians read their Bible and they say, okay, all right. You know, you need to believe in Jesus and Jesus saves you and Jesus justifies you and Jesus forgives you and Jesus washes you clean. Okay, I've got it now. And then they read scriptures that say, you need to obey You need to pursue righteousness. You need to pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And if you don't do good works, you're not going to heaven. And then people wonder, wait a second here. I I thought this was a grace thing. I mean, doesn't the Bible say we're saved by grace? Why does it say we're judged by works? Why does it say if we don't do good works, you know, we're cut down and thrown into the fire if we don't produce good fruit? And this is what confuses people. This is why the gospel of works salvation is so appealing to those who don't study the scriptures. 
Because the scriptures do teach that if you don't do good works, you're not going to heaven. The scriptures do teach that every good tree produces good fruit. The damning doctrine of works righteousness may at first seem very similar because they both say the same thing in those areas. But listen, the difference is, is that one group is doing good works in order to earn merit salvation. The other group is doing good works because they have received the free gift of salvation. One is doing it as a condition of salvation, a requirement of salvation. I do these good things, God then saves me. The other group is saying, no, God saves me, so I'm doing the good works. Do you see the difference? It's radically different. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Gift. Grace. Undeserved. Unearned favor. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Five different ways he says it in those two verses. 2 Timothy 1.9 speaks of Christ who has saved us and called us with a holy, holy calling, not according to our works but according to his riches and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus before all eternity. That's before you were born. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by his mercy and by the washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You cannot earn your salvation Salvation is not of works. You can't do enough good deeds. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace. Receive through faith alone in Christ alone. Listen very carefully. A Christian is one who bears good fruit because they are saved to bear good fruit. Titus 2.11 sometime. For the grace of God has appeared. For what purpose? instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared, bringing redemption to all men, telling them to do good deeds, to be zealous for good works. First salvation, then the works. Not works in hopes you might be saved. The Bible says that those who are trusting in their works to save them are not saved. And so when you're out in the world and you're talking to the Jehovah Witness, when you're talking to the Mormon, and they're all using real similar, talking about Jesus and death on the cross and faith and God and grace and love and all of this stuff, know this. They are trusting in their works so that they can be saved. 
which means they will never be saved unless they trust in Jesus Christ alone in what he did. No one is their own savior. It is faith in Christ alone that saves a person, nothing more, nothing less. Then once a person is saved, major things happen. Major things. The scriptures talk about believers being transformed by God's grace. Being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Being adopted, justified, sanctified, propitiated. Made into a new creature. And because all of these things happen, and they're all things that God does by his grace, we then become good trees and then produce good fruit. But listen, you can't produce good fruit so you can become a good tree. That's backwards. If you tell me you've been good and you haven't killed anyone and you've tried to read your Bible and you've been baptized... What you're telling me is I am my own savior. I don't care if you say Jesus is your savior. If you're trusting in what you do, you're not saved. And if that is you and in your heart right now, you know that Jesus is not your savior. And you know you're trusting in your good deeds and your church attendance and your little devotionals every morning and your reading of your daily bread. You're not saved. You need to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can start doing good works out of love and appreciation to God for what he has done for you. If you don't know what repentance is, repentance is this, whatever you're clinging to now to save you, whether it's your good works or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or whatever, whatever it is you're clinging to other than Jesus, his person and his work, whatever that is, Repentance is letting go of that. Turning your back on that. To receive, lay hold of, and follow Jesus. Faith is the positive aspect. Faith is a trusting belief in. Repentance is the letting go of. Repentance turns from. Faith turns towards. Repentance lets go. Faith grabs onto. That's why the scriptures say, repent and believe. It's all one act of turning from whatever you're trusting in to grab a hold of Jesus. And I know for a fact that if the rapture happened right now, there'd be people in here terrified. Terrified. You're unwilling to leave your sin and follow Jesus. To you, God calls you to repent, and and I plead with you to trust in Christ alone, to turn to Christ alone from your sins. Jesus alone rose from the dead. He alone ascended into heaven and sat down to the throne of the majesty on high. Jesus alone can save you. And the question you need to ask yourself is, will you have Jesus or not? Will you leave this place rejecting Jesus again, professing to be a Christian, but knowing you don't love him? He's not your savior. The most important question you could ever ask is, who is the Messiah and savior of the world? The answer, Jesus. 
Third, what, what must you do with this information? Look at verse 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The word offense is the word scandalon in the Greek, the word we get scandal from. It literally means, it literally describes a bait stick, a trip wire, um, a, a snare, a stumbling block. It's, it's that little wire that they put across the trail and a little Mr. Cottontail comes hopping down the bunny trail. And all of a sudden, he's hung. He's snagged, he's snared, he's tripped up. And what Jesus is saying here is, blessed is the one who does not stumble, trip up, get snared, does not have a problem with me being the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God. You know, there's so many people today who are tolerant of Christianity that they do not like it when you say, there is only one way. They cannot handle that one way business. Listen, you have your way and I have mine. No, God has his way, period. And notice the text first describes those who do not take offense or stumble over Christ. And they're described as the blessed, the happy, the privileged recipients of God's grace. Those are Christians. Those are Christians who have been saved by grace. Their eyes are open to their sinful condition. They understand they deserve God's judgment. They understand who Jesus is and what he did. They place their faith in that alone to save them, turning from their sin, letting go of it, turning their backs on it, receiving, embracing, following Christ. They become new creatures, transformed, radically changed, having their hearts transformed by God's grace. In fact, God predestines and calls and illumines and saves and sanctifies and redeems and on and on and on so that they are never the same again because they are new creatures. Secondly, Jesus implies there is another category, another group, those who do take offense at Christ. And to those that stumble, implied, instead of being blessed, they are cursed. They're cursed. Because they will not have Jesus be their way, their truth, and their life. They are like the people that Jesus speaks of in Luke 19, 14, in the parable of the miners, when they say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Remember that? You see, many people are willing to have Jesus be their savior. I mean, you know, hey, (laughs) you know, I'll come to church and pay my fire insurance dues. You know, I don't want to go to hell. And many people will have Jesus be their divine vending machine. You know, hey, I need something, God. You know, send me the goods. Many people will have Jesus be their divine, you know, psychologist and psychotherapist where they can go and just unload on God and they feel so good to get it off their chest because they've dumped on Jesus. But listen, they will not have Jesus dictating how they run their business. They will not have Jesus dictating how they do their taxes or how they love their wife or how they behave at school, or what they watch on TV. They will not have Jesus reigning over them. And these are the ones who sit in the pews week after week. Well, they call themselves Christians, and they look like Christians. If this describes you, I don't care how many religious deeds you do. I don't care how many times you've gone to church. I don't care if you were baptized by the Pope. I don't care if you have your Bible signed by 50 great preachers. You're not going to heaven until you repent and believe in Jesus alone and have him reign over you. 
If you will not part with your sins, you will not have Jesus and you have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The good thing is, is there's still a cure. There's still salvation today as long as it is called today. And Jesus is still offering the free gift of eternal life to all those who will repent and believe. Trusting in him, his life, his death, his resurrection alone. And if you have never done that, you need to do that today. And do not delay. He comes like a thief in the night. When they are crying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. They're swept away in a moment. So ask yourself the most important question you could ever ask. Who is the Savior? I think you all know the answer. Jesus. Then ask yourself whether or not you have taken the appropriate action. I will have Jesus reign over me. I will turn from my sins and I will believe and trust in him alone to save me. And if you are already saved, take the encouragement from this text. You can be the greatest man ever born of women and still not understand why God's doing what he's doing and still have the scriptures wrong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learned in this text Father, we are so grateful that your word has so many good truths in it, so many helpful truths for us to apply to our life. And Father, we do want to live according to it. We want to be godly. We want to walk before you in truth and the power of your spirit. Father, help us all to draw encouragement from John's confusion. Help us to remember that we can really know the Bible well. We can think we have everything figured out and all the chronology down pat. And yet, things might not go as we expect. But they always go according to your plan. It's just we don't understand quite as well as we should. And Father, if there's people here right now who don't know you, and I'm sure there is, I pray that right now you would grant them repentance, that they in their heart would make a commitment to you right now to turn from their sin, whatever that is, to turn from whatever they're clinging to to save them, whether it be their good works, their religious deeds, their baptism, their upbringing, their faithful church attendance for many years, whatever it is, they would let go of that and they would turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and they would humbly bow before his throne, receive the free gift of eternal life, through merely placing their trusting faith in him. Father, may you save those whom you intend to save. May they be transformed and may they become trophies of your grace like so many others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.